mentioned at the start of service when we were reading this psalm about the Lord is good, and then I commented about, um, oh, the earthquake in Nepal and all these things that happened far away, but I also commented about uh, college student was murdered in Bloomington uh, a couple days ago. One of the things that it's always interesting I notice um, is that people will always say, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with you, our thoughts and, you know, have, remember them in your prayers. But my basic assumption, because I know my own habits, is how few of us actually pray for those things. We think about it, but how few of us actually pray. Like in this case, what, would you, what do we ask God for? What are we asking for? What do we want God to do? I mean, something's already happened that, in, in one sense, can't be undone. So what do we want? So I'm going to ask uh, Sadie if she'd come up here and pray. Is it, it Hannah Wilson, right? And her, pray for Hannah, her family, and ask God for what you think we want. What, what are we praying for? Um, so I thought it'd be good just to, as a church, actually do what we say. Because how many times have you said to somebody, I'll pray for you, but you really don't? I'm guilty, okay? So let's pray. Go ahead and say. Father, we ask that you would draw near to us, that you would draw near to our campus and to our city. And God, thank you for the life of Hannah, for everything that we've heard of her from her friends, just the life that she was, her warm personality, her love for people, the fun that she brought, the way she lit up a room. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you would draw near to all that love Hannah and are so broken and sad and deeply grieved over the loss of her. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be the comforter, the one that brings peace, the one that really is a refuge that people can run to. And we pray that you would stir in people's hearts that people would know that you are good and kind. That, that you, you love Hannah and that this, this breaks your heart too. I pray that people knowing that, it, that we have a God who weeps with us, that that would be a comfort. And God, we do pray for students on campus, I think especially of the girls that she lived with in her apartment, her sisters in her sorority house, friends in her classes. And God, I can just picture some of their faces that we know. And we pray that as they are afraid, as they are sad, as they are mad, we pray that you would draw near to them and that you would meet them in all of these different emotions. And God, that people's hearts would be turned towards you for hope and for peace. And God, we pray especially for Hannah's family, that you would draw near to them. And we pray that you would love them through your people, that you would reach out to them through people that love you and love them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And God, I pray too, because I, you know, we ask for a deep joy and an irrational kind of peace that seemed to defy the situation. Not just for those grieving for Hannah, but for how all of us grieve a variety of losses. I know there's people here, even this morning, that have lost parents in the last few weeks. And God, sometimes we wonder, we ask you, why, why didn't you have the power to, why didn't you utilize your power to undo what happened? But we're going to rest that with you. 
but we are going to believe that you will be active in response to what happened and that you will um, bring goodness and you will bring a spotlight on Jesus through this. We don't know how that happens, how that works, but we know, God, you're good, and we're grateful for that. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Sadie. Um, when my kids were younger, that rescue me slide up there, when my kids were younger, I, uh, when I only had two kids, and now I, I thought I was busy then, but anyway, uh, Gretchen was probably maybe three or four, Mark was maybe a year and a half or two and a half, we were swimming one time at a pool, I mean, I, I was swimming, I, they weren't swimming, I was holding them, but I was with Gretchen on one end of the pool, and I didn't know where Kathy was, um, Somewhere being totally irresponsible, I think. But uh, I was here, and I turned around, and Mark, who was only, maybe, maybe he was two and a half or one, but he didn't know how to swim at all, and we had not put those little water wings on yet, him. So I don't know why. That was probably Kathy's job. She was just irresponsible. She's not here this morning, so I can say these things. So, um, so I'm on this end over here, and I'm playing with Gretchen, holding Gretchen. Of course, she's got her water wings and her little two. And I look on the other end, and it was one of those pools that has steps coming down. And I'm, I'm on the other side, but I, I see Mark going down those steps one at a time, and water, 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 and he just keeps going. <laughs> and, and, and it was just like, and I, like I said, I don't know where Kathy was, and we're being irresponsible, but I was, I, I run over there, and Mark finally kind of sticks his hands up, like, he didn't know, rescue me, then he starts floating, but it just kind of like this, somebody's got to save me, Dad, and I, you know, because I dash over, and I do rescue him. But it's like, he just walked right into something, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, you know, his hands are waving up there, and of course he never did that again. But we have these rescue me moments, right? That we all, you know, of course we understand in a pool, but sometimes rescue me is maybe the strongest, most powerful, shortest prayer we can utter. Now in this case, you know, he walked into it, Now it wasn't because he was, you know, sinned or flawed, he just didn't know. But it's interesting how much rescue me, rescue me, becomes a, a prayer in the, new, in, the, in the Bible. So go to the next slide here. Here's what I want to do. I want to ask men, all the men stand up, and we're gonna, you're going to read these with me. And I'm only doing this not, not because men get ourselves in situations we need to be rescued more than women, but I just, uh, the Psalms in this case were written by David, some of them, other with sons of Korah. They were all men. So sometimes, we can, can, sometimes Christianity can be made to sound a lot like we're a bunch of pitiful people. Oh, rescue me, God, rescue me. These are strong men who wrote these who understand the situation they were in. So there's two slides, and you'll notice rescue me is, and I didn't, there are a ton of these phrases in the Psalms. I just did two slides worth. So men out loud and loudly, read these with me. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me because of your unfailing love. I come to you for protection, O Lord my God. Save me from my persecutors. Rescue me. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. There's four more. Next slide. Arise, O Lord. Rescue me from the wicked with your sword. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he rescues me from the traps of my enemies. Protect me. Rescue my life from them. Do not let me be disgraced, for in you I take refuge. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. 
You refuse to let my enemies triumph over me. Go ahead and sit down. Thanks, guys. It's interesting. I, my guess is nobody, I, I'm guessing nobody here has prayed that er, the very opening one. You know, uh, Lord, rescue me, slap my enemies in the face. Um, so you, you, sometimes the Psalms and David's prayers and the other psalmists, they're quite raw. And of course, they're not asking rescue from drowning in a pool or financial difficulty. The rescue they're talking about seems to come at a deeper level. But rescue me. It's not a prayer of, of weak and pitifulness. It's a, it's a prayer coming from the strength of knowing that you need more than what you have in terms of the health of your soul. What we've been doing, we started this last week, we this for a number of weeks, a series called Against the Odds. What do you do when your back's against the wall? Uh, last week we did a, uh, talked about a, ser- a, a situation where King Jehoshaphat, you, you may not know all these names, but him, he was the king of Judah. His army was small. They had three big armies up against him that were marching against him. Back was against the wall. They knew they'd be destroyed if they actually engaged in battle. And God intervened and uh, caused confusion in the enemy. And the, um, not a man was lost. But closer to home, we think of situations where Nehemiah's back's against the wall. Which, um, maybe it's a health situation where it's like the odds are against you. Um, maybe it's a financial situation where the odds are against you. Maybe it's a relational situation where you feel like it's one in a hundred chance this relationship's going to continue, whether it's your marriage or just a friendship or dating relationship. But if you haven't, all of us sooner or later are, find ourselves in situations where we feel like the little pawn against a whole bunch of pieces that are bigger and stronger and can make better moves than we can. And we feel like we don't know what to do. I mean, that was part of Jehoshaphat's prayer last week. Don't know what to do. And, and of course, that kills the, the great American spirit. And it's this can-do American spirit to actually have to acknowledge there are situations we find ourselves in where we simply do not know what to do. And we look to God for help, not necessarily as a you know, the holy lifesaver from the ship, but we believe that he loves us and we want to know what he wants us to do in this situation. So we're going to look this week, we're going to look at the next, go to the next slide. We're going to look at a situation in Acts chapter 12 where Peter finds himself up against the wall, incredibly against the eye. And Peter, uh, you, if you know the book of Acts, and if you don't know, so Jesus had died, resurrected. The book of Acts is the story of how his disciples kind of exploded into this whole new movement called the followers of Jesus. And incredible things started happening. People's lives were changed. People were healed from sickness and disease. I mean, it was just this onslaught of the goodness of God pouring out. But of course, wherever life grows, biblical principle, wherever, wherever there's movement toward life and wholeness, the enemy pushes back. So in this particular situation in Acts 12, Peter's arrested by King Herod. That's the grandson of the Herod you read about in the Christmas story. Peter's arrested by King Herod, who intends to execute him. All right, so let's read the first part of that. Go to the next passage here, and we'll talk about how does Peter, or what happens in an against-the-wall kind of situation. Herod arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration, which is a week-long celebrating, celebrating the way, way past in history. God aligned them to cross the Red Sea. Then he, Herod, imprisoned him, placing under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. What that meant was um, each, of the four, each of the squads took a four-hour or three-hour shift, and there was one guard 
shackled to this arm, one guard shackled to that arm, and two guards to the door. So any possibility of a great escape are quite small. You have a guard shackled to one arm, a guard shackled to the other arm, two guards to the door. Peter had no idea what was going to happen to him. Herod was not in a good mood, but he, Peter knew things were not looking good. You wouldn't want Peter with you in Vegas on this weekend. Not, odds aren't good, all right? Herod intended to bring Peter out for a public trial after the Passover. Herod would never do that during Passover because it was such a kind of a holy time for the Jews. Herod really didn't care, but he didn't want to offend them. And we know from other parts of Scripture, Herod's intention was, most likely, public execution. So odds are against Peter. His back's against the wall. Verse 5 says, While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. So, you're Peter. And again, this is one of those times where one of my favorite authors says, no flash forwards. In other words, sometimes we know how the Bible stories end up, so we kind of read it that way. If we didn't know how it ended up and just were in that situation, you can, you can feel the tension a little bit more. You can feel the doubt and the lack of faith and the challenges. I mean, Peter's chained up, and he thinks he knows what might be down the road. So let me just finish. So go to the next slide. I'll finish, sir. I'm just going to read the story. So listen as I just read the rest of the story, because Peter has a pretty miraculous um, rescue. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep. Fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Again, chained on both sides, two guys at the door. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and the angel of the Lord stood before Peter. All right, weird meter moment. An angel stands before Peter, and our reaction is, I've never seen one. My response is, maybe we have. Maybe we don't know. In this case, Peter knew. We believe it happened. We believe it's real. We believe these things still happen today. I've actually read a story of a guy in China who felt like, believed that an angel let him out of a prison complex. So it's a weird, weird meaner moment, but if we believe in the invisible world, we believe these things happen. An angel of the Lord stood before Peter. Then the angel struck him on the side to awaken him. I wonder how hard. Peter got up. I mean, the fact that this even includes that. Instead of the angel awakening, he struck him to wake him up. I mean, if he was an angel, couldn't he just have God wake him up? I'm just, those are the kind of thoughts I have. Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. No keys, no unlocking, no bolt cutters. Then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He thought it was dreaming. I don't know what's going on, but I wish this was happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and this opened, them all, this opened for them all by itself. Another weird meter moment that you kind of think, oh, I don't know, but if the invisible world's real, nothing is beyond what God could do. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me, rescued me, delivered me, is how that word could be translated, from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. Remember, we just read, they were praying earnestly for Peter. He knocked on the door and the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, 
she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. So Peter's like, excuse me. I mean, you're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided, well, it must be his angel. So they thought, well, maybe she's telling the truth, but it must be an angel of Peter, because Peter, he, he was in against the odd situation. He's against the wall. There's no way that's Peter out there. Come on, Rhoda, no way. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I think the Holy Spirit has some sense of humor here. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had let him out of the prison. And then the story continues. Herod gets mad. He kills the guards that were on duty because that's what you do. And then if a prisoner escaped, you kill the guards. So here Peter is against, the, not against the wall financially, relationally, or health-wise. He's against the wall like life or death against the wall. And God, invisible world reality, weird meter moment. God sends an angel and shackles fall off, doors come open. He's free. And, and we love these stories. I love these stories. We love these stories from the book of Acts when these kind of things happen. It's like, wow. That's what God can do for me. He can set me... Am I against the wall? I mean, simplistic formula here. When my life's against the wall, I pray earnestly, and then things happen. But maybe not always. I mean, think for a second. Think of the Old Testament stories we know and we love. We love Moses when he's leading the children of Israel out, and all of a sudden he's faced with the Red Sea over here, and behind him here comes Pharaoh's army, He's between, he's against the wall, against the odds. And then God opens the Red Sea. We love the, wow, rescue. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Here's a man in a land of lions. He's against the wall, against the odds. And what does God do? He shuts the mouths of the lions. We love those stories. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown to a fiery furnace that should have consumed them just like that. And they come out not even smelling like smoke because God rescued them. We love these supernatural stories. But is, it, is that always how it happens? Go to the next slide here, because I'm going to... I cheated a little bit when I read this passage. I didn't include all of verse 3, and I didn't tell you what was before that. We, I said Herod arrested Peter. Here's the whole verse. Go to the next slide. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. So Herod had just done something that had pleased the Jewish people. Go to the next slide. What, was, what did Herod just do? Some of you might know, but what did Herod just do that had pleased the Jewish people? Now let's read it. Go ahead. Next slide. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James killed with a sword. This is James, the brother of John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote the book of Revelation. So there was also a James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. This is James, the brother of John. So here's my question. Next slide. Why not a miraculous rescue for James? What's up with that, God? This is my cynical self talking sometimes. Well, Surely they were earnestly praying for James, too. We aren't told that, but we can't imagine they would have prayed for Peter and not for James. So where was James' angel? 
Lunch? Off duty? Why didn't James get the miraculous? Why, why did he get his head cut off? Because that's when they say killed by the sword. That's what they mean. Because sometimes these stories of against, back against the wall, against the odds, we think, okay, I love these stories of Moses and Gideon, all these people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and the book of Acts where all these people are miraculously set free. But there are times in the Bible where, at least in our mind, maybe God was sleeping or unable to do something, lacked the power to do so, Lacked the love to do so? What's going on? Why didn't James get an angel? I mean, John, who wrote the book of John, who was close to Jesus, I want, you wonder how much John would have wrestled with that. Like, well, I'm sure he was all glad to see Peter, but he's probably thinking, my, my brother's headless body is over in a grave somewhere. What's up with that? Because it's, it's okay to ask these questions of God. It's okay to ask God questions. He's a, he's a very big boy. He can handle these kind of questions. And sometimes I like to encourage people, because this is where I like to go, I like to ask those questions, because it's like, okay, God, it looks like I really want to base my Christianity on the rescue stories. I love those stories. A bank account's getting low, God sends something, it all of a sudden gets full. I'm sick, all I pray, all of a sudden I'm better. My marriage is falling apart, I pray, all of a sudden my wife and I are madly in love. Now, am I saying that prayer doesn't make a difference? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that uh, well, they must have prayed harder for Peter than they did for James. And, and you might say, well, well then, well, where was James's angel? Why didn't, angel? why didn't James get the miraculous rescue? He was up against the wall. He was a little pawn, and he kind of got his pawn chopped in half. And the answer is, I don't know. But I do know this. God is absolutely good and absolutely powerful all the time. He could have saved, saved James had he wanted to, just like he could, have had, he could have rescued Jesus off the cross had he wanted to. Now, does that mean that God loves seeing his son crucified and tortured, and he loves seeing James get his head knocked off? And every single disciple after that also was martyred sooner or later. So does that mean that God loves pain? God, God was just kind of like, oh, well, sorry about that one. But read the story about Moses. That's a really cool story, but sorry about these. Now, there's something about the stories of suffering that might speak to a different kind of rescue than what we want. Let me say that again. There are something about the stories of suffering and even persecution that may actually speak to the kind of rescue we don't want, but we desperately need. Because... Following Jesus doesn't mean your life is going to go well. It does mean we can become abnormally loving and joyful and courageous. It does mean we, kinda ha- we have these souls inside of us that are increasing in size and strength and joy and courage in spite of circumstances. See, following Jesus, Jesus never said, you follow me and your bank account will be full, your marriage will be great, your kids will always obey you. And you'll love your job all the time. Jesus never said that. He did say you'll have joy that's irrational. You'll have peace the world can't ever knock off you. They can never take it away. You'll have an abundance of life about you now that people will wonder about. We don't know this is true for a fact, but one historian during the time of the Bible writing actually recorded 
that the man who guarded James before James was beheaded was so impressed by James' demeanor as he was being led to death that that guard at that moment decided he wanted to be a follower of Jesus too and allowed himself to be executed as well. Now, that was a historian. We don't know how valid that is, but there are stories throughout history of men and women who have lost their lives to persecution, and those who watch them who are, are, are like amazed at how they walk into that because they know there is, this is not all of my life. There is life bigger than this life. Now, I'm not saying simply, well, we're Christians because we get heaven after we die. No, we're Christians because we believe we now live in a life and a world that's bigger than what we see. And our life with God our eternal kind of life with God, which we can live right now. Yes, it has true true ramifications, but we can live right now in the confidence of a small child embraced in his father's loving arms, knowing that our God is good. And knowing that not all questions have answers. If I were talking to John right now and he were to ask me, "Why, why, why Peter, but not my brother? I think I'd say to John, I don't know. But I do know God's good, and he's powerful, and his promise of love and joy and courage and peace, those are absolute promises that will not change. So it's, it's kind of like, okay, what do you do when your back's against the wall? Yeah, you ask Jesus to rescue you. Yes, you ask, God, I need, I need your wisdom. God, we don't know what to do. I don't know what to do in this situation, that situation. But your rescue may come in a way that you haven't scripted. Because we want God to intervene, but also we kind of have this mentality, at least I do. I have this way of thinking, okay, here's how I want God to intervene. Okay, God, here's a script. Can you follow the script for me, please? Because you're supposed to intervene, and that's kind of a really good idea for you, God, that would make you really look good if you just did it my way. Because usually our way of God intervening causes us little discomfort, right? But if God were to intervene in a way that caused us, people we love, our friends, discomfort, I don't want that, God. No, no, saying no to discomfort. I speak no to discomfort. But maybe sometimes the discomfort is the very thing that brings you more alive. I mean, you see about the men and women throughout the Bible and throughout history that have suffered for the name of Jesus or have been persecuted there seems to be a joy about them that is almost, well, not almost, it feels irrational. Like, how can they be so? They seem like they have this deep-seated joy that nothing's going to, they'll never get knocked off that horse. Where do you get that kind of joy? And, and, and so we think about those things. I and mean, I think, you know, Dan had mentioned the, the whole challenge with our church's finances now, and there's times where, I wonder in my own heart, okay, God, you could just kind of, you could make a pretty quick auto-deposit, God, if you wanted to. And you have ways of doing that, God, because, you know, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, so I'm sure you've got a pretty good bank account, and I'm sure you won't miss a few thousand dollars. So, like I said last week, like a good neighbor, State Farmer's there. Oh, okay, bank account still reads the same. Your health report still reads the same your relationship still feels like it's falling apart. And then we go to, like a good neighbor, state front, you know, God has to be here, change it right now. Health reports still reads the same. And, and we start getting, understandably, 
angry at God. Or start questioning either his goodness or his power. Either he's not good and doesn't love me, or he doesn't have the power to do it, or the third option is, I'm really screwing things up. He must hate me. I must have done something that deserved his wrath, and this is how he's punishing me. God's mad at me. And I would assert all three of those things are all, are all false. God's always good. God's always powerful. And he doesn't, he's not whimsical about wh- whether he loves us or not, how he treats us. But maybe there's a whole different way of thinking about what freedom looks like for us, what joy looks like, what courage looks like, what love looks like. And so when you're up against the wall, absolutely cry out to God for rescue. Absolutely even tell him what you think the script should read. We're supposed to tell him what we're feeling and what we're thinking. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was going to be betrayed, and he knew what was coming, Jesus even said, my soul is overwhelmed. Overwhelmed to the point of grief. I mean, if you think you've ever been sad or grieving or anxious, um, Jesus hit the extreme of those in human ways. It said he was so intense that his blood was like drops of, his sweat was like drops of blood. We don't know if it was blood. There are some, there's some people that can explain how that could have, but anyway, either way, it was intense. His back was against the wall. The odds were against him because he knew what the Father had planned for him. He knew what he was about to do would be required for us to be the kind of men and women we wanted to be set free, broken, break the chains of what holds us. And here's what Jesus' prayer was in the Garden of Semi. It's one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. He says he falls in the ground, and at first he has three parts to his prayer. He says, Abba, Father, you can do all things. Abba was the term that was used almost in intimacy like daddy it was an intimate term god you can do god you can do anything you want to right now you have the power to change what's in front of me you have the power god to change my bank account change my health report change my relationship god you have the power to do that and then his next prayer jesus said take this cup from me he's speaking his human we believe he was God and human, but he's speaking his human desire that he could write the script for what has to happen. God, can you change the plan? You can do whatever you want to. Looks like I see where we're heading with this, God. Can you take it away from me? So I always tell people there's nothing wrong with you expressing to God your human desires, what you would love to see happen in your marriage, in your relationships, in your bank account, in your health you know, in your medical records or whatever. You've you, you got to tell God those things. He's not, a, don't try to, I used to think I should tell God what I don't want, thinking that if I told him that, he'd give me what I want. You know, because you, you don't want to appear to be selfish, so you kind of tone down your requests, but it seemed like the people who prayed in the Bible, they were just like, no, this is what I want. God, you can do everything you want to do. You have all power and you're good. This is what I want. Now, if Jesus would have stopped his prayer there with a period, or if we stop our prayer there with a period, um, we've turned God into a holy Santa Claus or a holy pot machine. I tell him what I want, I press the button, that's what I get. The next part of Jesus' prayer, he simply says this, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I know you have all power and you're all loving. Here's what I want. But God, I want what you want more than what I want. So don't let my want 
override your desire, God, because I believe and I trust that your desire, what you want, God, will ultimately end in the greatest joy for me and greatest joys for others through me. And Jesus knew that. So if you pray that way, but don't pray this one, then you've reduced God to, a, to an idol, basically, that gives you what you want. So, I think I've told this story before, but I've, I bought Kathy's engagement ring. Um, and I asked her to marry me. And she told me, this was her answer the first time, I can't say yes, but I can't say no. And what do I do with that? Well, I can't say yes. I can't say yes, but I don't want to say no. Well, what do I do with a stupid ring then? Well, I can't say yes, but I can't say no. Okay, I'll put it back in my top drawer. Kathy knew where I hid it too. And whenever she'd come visit me, she'd pull it out. It's like, that's not fair. She, would tell, she told me this all later. I didn't know this at the time. But what I started doing was, with her ring, which actually right now is broken. The diamond thing broke off, so she's trying to... Re- so if you see her without it, it's not because she's mad at me. It just, so I'll, I'll pretend like it's my ring, although now my fingers are too fat to get it off. I got it, okay. So this is her ring with a diamond in it. I actually started praying with that in my hand and said, okay, God, you can do anything you want to do. You have all power and you love me. I know you do. God, I want to marry Kathy. It's my human... I want... This is what I want. I want this more than anything right now in the world. I want to marry Kathy. I love her. I want to spend my life with her. But nevertheless, God, I I want what you want more than I want. And if that's not what you want, I'm okay letting go of this. I don't want to. And and, and literally, when I would be praying that way, and I would actually pray, I I wouldn't pray with my hands up in the air, nothing against that. There were times where I would start to that part of the prayer, and my, my hand almost apart from my body, would start doing this. Well, wait a minute. I'm not sure I want to say that because I kind of want to hold on to this hope. But I would always always say, God, just let me open my hands and give me peace about it. So, God, this is what I want, but if you need to take this away, I trust your goodness more than I trust my desire. So I don't know where you are. Um with being up against the wall. I know sooner or later, we're all going to be there. I'm not saying that like in a morbid kind of hope for all of us to have horrible lives or horrible circumstances, but if you're human, you'll have those things. Um, And if you're human, you'll always want your story to end up like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Peter. Nobody wants James' story. We all want Peter's story, right? We all want Moses. We don't want Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah lost his head. But be honest with God. Follow the model of Jesus. Be honest with him. But then say, nevertheless, God, what you want more than what I want. So when you're up against the wall, be honest with God. But keep your hands open. All right? Let's pray. God, we... um, There are people here with any variety of stories right now. And anywhere on the spectrum of great hope and great despair. And we're anywhere on the spectrum of the kind of desires we want from you. And some of us may feel against the wall, living life against the odds. Some of us maybe aren't there right now. But 
in the end, God, it all kind of fleshes out because we want, we know what we desire in life, and we believe some of our desires you've given us. And so they're not, our desires aren't bad, unless they realm into sinful things. They're not bad desires. It's not bad to want to be healthy. It's not bad to want to have a better marriage or a better relationship. It's not bad to want to have more money. But if we read where we let that become our idol, God, would you gently but clearly give us hearts that more and more can say to you, but we want what you want. Because God, we know that we don't see what you see, God, so we're assuming what you want is going to lead to greater joy, life, and freedom for many. So if that's what you need to do, God, we will, we will, we will let our desires go to you. Trusting again in your goodness. And so, God, I pray for these, my brothers and my sisters here this morning, that we would have that kind of confidence in your goodness and your love. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. We, uh, we finish every Sunday with communion at Exodus. And uh, so the band will come on.